today's episode of the Closet Champion podcast, I'm going to be saying farewell to Kamala. I'm going to be discussing Raw Underground and Retribution, and I will be giving you something to watch this weekend as I go over my top 10 SummerSlam matches of all time. Welcome to the Closet Champion podcast. Welcome to the Closet Champion Podcast. I am your host, the reigning, rarely defending, highly disputed champion of wrestling podcasts, and I want to begin this episode by saying farewell to a true WWE legend, James Harris, better known as the Ugandan giant Kamala. Um, Most of you, if you know James, uh, if you know James Harris at all, you know him as Kamala, and you know him probably from the time that I knew him which is like 92 to 95-ish in that time period where he was with uh, his second or third run with the WWF and then into WCW as part of the Faces of, or the Dungeon of Doom group along with Kevin Sullivan and uh, the Shark and the Faces of Fear and all that. Um, I only got to see Kamala at the end of his career. I can't speak too much to him as a wrestler. You know, he didn't have the greatest moveset or anything like that. But he was an amazing character. And he was one that was, at his peak, he was one of the most feared guys. He was a, he was a monster kind of character and played that role really well. Drew a lot of money in a lot of territories. Um, I think had runs with Hogan um, in Madison Square Garden days and things like that. Um, so, you know, top card guy anywhere he went for most of his career. I will always remember him. Um, You know, it's interesting, Sam Roberts earlier said that, like, um, no one wants to talk about or no one wants to think about um, the babyface Kamala. But I actually, that's what I knew him from the most, and I liked him the most. I thought it was a great angle that never really gets talked about. Um, So I wanted to just spend a quick minute of it because it's my uh, favorite Kamala in wrestling story. It's uh, his feud with The Undertaker in 92. He ends up in a casket match uh, against The Undertaker, and this is where we learn that Kamala is uh, afraid of death or afraid of caskets, definitely afraid of caskets, um, possibly afraid of death. But watch this match from Survivor Series 1992. It's not a five-star match or anything like that. It's not even a very long match. But he sells that fear so well and knowing that this is the beginning of a baby face turn for Kamala he is so sympathetic and how do you not just feel for this guy who does not want to be in this match who does not want to be there he's forced into it by his handlers again this was not a proud moment in pro wrestling um, but the character he understood that character and played that character so well And it was, to me, even now looking at it, it made me truly have sympathy for him, uh, which is that not the mark of a great babyface who can get you to really, truly, like, make your heart break for him. And this is 
when he wasn't even a babyface yet. So I always love that moment in wrestling. I, I think it's one of the the feuds that doesn't get talked about when you talk about The Undertaker because he had so many big ones and so many great ones. And like I said, while he wasn't putting on any five-star matches with Kamala, um, it, he really did a lot for his own character and for Kamala during that time. Uh, so go back and watch that if you have an opportunity because it's a great tribute to a man that we just lost. So rest in peace, James. Uh, you're not in pain anymore, and your memory will live on with all of us, and we thank you for everything that you did uh, for us and obviously thoughts and prayers with the family and all that good stuff. Um, moving on to some lighter topics, um, there's two things that have been just absolutely pulverized in social media and on the dirt sheets and in my own personal chat groups um, that our WWE is doing lately. It is the Raw Underground, Shane McMahon's Raw Underground, the wannabe fight club sort of thing, and Retribution. And my issue is not that these things are good and people think they suck. These things are not good. I think um, I think Raw Underground is just kind of hokey. Um, and I think Retribution needs a lot of direction. But my issue with it is people are fucking hanging WWE out to dry for not doing enough, for not doing things differently, for it being same old, same old all the time, and all the same guys get pushes, and we see the same stories, and it's always regurgitated, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm with you on that. I want new things. I want new ideas. So here is, to me, two pretty big, Raw Underground, definitely more of, of a, a reach, but two things that are very much outside of the normal comfort zone for WWE programming. And I've been saying it since this whole shutdown thing started and has continued to happen, that this is the time to be trying crazy shit. Crazy shit is going to make you strike out a lot. That's just the nature of the beast. But it's also going to allow you to hit some home runs. And I think we need an opportunity now to try to hit some home runs. Ratings are terrible. That's well known. There's a lot of you know uncertainty with the future of the business and the future of certain people. Um, you know, after WWE released all those guys in April, I think there was a lot of feeling from anybody in the business of I could be gone at any moment. So, with that being said, I say try all the crazy shit that you can. And I am not going to slam WWE for trying something new. Are either of them home runs? No, not in my opinion. Um, I think Retribution is salvageable because it's a group. It's an unmasked group at this point. So there's still things you can do with them um, to make them interesting. Uh, Raw Underground is just, I think, one of those things that from the beginning was either going to work or not. And the consensus is that it didn't. They did it for a second week this week because they have to. I think they should do it for one or two more because, I mean, shit, if you fold up now, you're already sunk. So you might as well try it. Um, maybe so, maybe something catches. Maybe you develop a new star. Um, and that is the one thing that I will say for Raw Underground. And actually, uh, Devin was the one that pointed this out. Uh, sometimes, you know, it takes someone that's a little bit more on the outside to see things a little bit clearly. You know, the whole forest through the trees kind of idea. But he pointed out, he's like, 
Dolph lost to this guy, Riddick Moss, who I'd never even heard of this guy. Who is he? And it's he hasn't heard of him because we don't watch, you know, main event and we don't watch the you know the the C shows um, that are on the WWE network. And that's where Riddick Moss has been staying. And if this is an opportunity, he beat Dolph Ziggler. You know, he beat him in this weird, you know, fight club kind of setting. And God knows it's not the first time Dolph's done a job, but if this gives us the opportunity to put eyes on some people that are otherwise being ignored, again, I say, where's the problem? If Retribution introduces us to some new faces, what's the problem? Like, could things be done better? Yeah, we all want to be in creative. Um, but I mean, shit, if you listen to the Bruce Pritchard podcast, it sounds like that's a fucking walking nightmare hell on earth, <laughs> being in control of that shit. So I don't know if we really want that anyway, or if we just want to sit on our couches and uh, critique it. I know I certainly prefer that. Um, but it's, again, it's at least they're trying. At least they're doing something new and unique. And it this reminds me, speaking of, you know, the ratings being down and, and all this stuff, this reminds me a lot of 1995-ish, 94-95 WWF. Uh, I'm going through and watching the old Raws, the old WWF stuff beginning in 93. We're still in 93, but I know what's coming up. And one of the things that always sticks out to me is, yeah, a lot of people say that it was a dark time in wrestling. And sure, it was. But there aren't things that weren't born out of that time period that went on to be incredible uh, or changed the game, so to speak. Hell, if we're looking at that time period, let's take a look at who we were introduced to in that time period. Steve Austin came into the WWF because they were trying new shit. They were trying new faces. He was the ringmaster, but he became stone cold pretty quickly after that. We get that. We get, um, hey, how about this? We get monthly pay-per-views. You know, this was during a time when wrestling was down across the board. WWF was still ahead of WCW. Um, but what WCW started doing was running monthly pay-per-views, or at least a lot more frequent pay-per-views than uh, WWF was running at the time. WWF had the five. They had Royal Rumble, uh, WrestleMania, SummerSlam, Survivor Series, and King of the Ring. And WCW started putting out these near-monthly pay-per-views and making money off of it and... WWF, who was struggling to, you know, make money and stay afloat at the time, said, shit, there's a way that other people are making money. Let's make money that way, too. That's something that they probably wouldn't have done if things were good and they were riding high. They thought they could get away with only five pay-per-views a year, five mega shows a year. And I don't know about you, but I like the monthly pay-per-views. Even the ones that aren't great are at least still pretty good. So we got, because of that, we got In Your House, which, which turned into, you know, everything else that we are now accustomed to. So we got that out of trying things and seeing if they'll stick to the wall. Here's another thing. Okay, yeah, 1995 had, you know, the goon and, uh, you know, T.L. Hopper, the plumber, and, um, you know, Bob Sparkplug Holly is a race car driver, and, and Mantar, he's half man, half beast, and he came with a giant stupid fucking head that didn't get in the ring yeah and those are all strikeouts and that all happened in 1995 but what else happened in 1995 that i would argue wouldn't happen in a lot of other time periods especially for wwf gold dust happened in 1995 you tell me a character like that is someone that they would introduce if 
everything was good and times and money was up and everything was up. No way. That was a very controversial character. That was a risk. But you know what? They didn't have anything to lose at that point. So you start taking these shots and sometimes you fire and you get gold dust. Like, come on, man. Where would WWE be now if it weren't for gold dust and Dustin Rhodes? And he's still killing it. Like that dude's had one of the longest careers ever uh, and still looking good. He's not, you know, no offense to Ric Flair, but he's not looking like Ric Flair in 2006 out there. So all I'm saying is let's not crucify these guys for trying. You know, let, let's shit on it for not being good because it's not good. But again, go back to anybody that's complaining about this. Go back and watch a random episode of Raw from like 2015. And tell me, now I know it's going to be in front of a live audience, but tell me you'd rather see that regurgitated for the next five years or if you'd rather see them try some new shit and some of it's going to be silly and some of it's not going to work but we might be able to hit some home runs too so i say wwe one good for you for trying two do better because i'm not going to deny it i'm not going to sugarcoat it it's not a great product but at least you're trying try harder uh, but keep swinging keep swinging and i for one the closet champion salute you for swinging um one other quick thing. This is going to be really short. And by the way, this is all totally off the cuff. I have no notes in front of me except for my top 10 list. Um, and I don't even have notes on the individual matches. This is going to be a very quick list and kind of a half-assed list. Um, uh, but, you know, it is what it is. But one other thing I want to say real quick. Uh, AEW with the TNT Championship. Uh, my apologies. I'm sorry. Uh, that first belt was unfinished and it did look like shit. But we were being promised for weeks and weeks that we were going to finally see the final product. And in my mind, the whole time, I was kind of thinking, yeah, okay, whatever. It's still probably not going to be that great because I don't like the base. And so how much can you really pretty up? How much lipstick can you put on the pig? You know, I thought at the end of the day, I didn't like it because I did not like the belt. Well, it turns out I just didn't like the unfinished product of the belt. The final product was revealed last night on uh, Dynamite and it's fucking beautiful it's a beautiful belt i still obviously you know it being called the tnt championship and the tnt logo being prominent i'm not thrilled with but it is pretty and i don't hate the red nearly as much now that all the gold is on there so all right i was wrong on that one i missed the mark on that one um yeah so that's that is what it is um but other than that, I didn't have too much to say. I'm going to get into a Summer Slam workup and uh, prediction episode, but that'll be next week uh, once I see a little bit more WWE programming. Uh, we still don't have the card totally finalized anyway, so I'm going to hold off on that for a bit. But I figure if you guys are looking for something to watch this weekend, uh, it is Summer Slam season. So check these out on the WWE Network. I'm not going to spend much time talking about any of these. Um, I'd rather you guys just go and watch them and come talk to me about them personally if you saw something that you liked and you wanted to discuss further. I'm going to try to spend less than a minute on each of these and get you out of here pretty quick. Uh, number 10 on the list, SummerSlam 1992, Randy Savage versus The Ultimate Warrior. I really like this match because you had two baby faces going at it, which is always kind of tricky to pull off. They worked around this by having Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect kind of sell the idea that one of the two baby faces had contacted them and bought their services. So leading up to it was this whole, ooh, who is he going to, you know, who 
is the coward that paid Ric Flair to help them. And I won't say what happens, but it, it's fun and it's a great way to work around uh, working a babyface versus babyface match. They did it really well, and it's a great SummerSlam. It was the first thing big that happened at uh, in London, uh, so you know everyone was out for it, and it's just a great vibe and a great match. Number nine on the list: uh, Brock Lesnar versus CM Punk, 2013. This is another one that is a really good card, actually, along with 92. I think 2013 is, is one of those uh, underrated SummerSlams. But uh, the whole card is great. This match is really good to me because it proves the point that if you can tell a great in-ring story, it does not matter if it's a Styles Clash or not. If you look at CM Punk and Brock Lesnar on paper you wouldn't think that they would necessarily be two types of guys to put on great matches together. Um, with Punk being a little bit undersized and most of Brock's great matches and memorable matches being against guys like John Cena um, or The Big Show or, I mean, got even Kurt Angle, who's not a, a big guy, but, a, you know, a built guy, and here comes little skinny CM Punk, uh, you wouldn't think that he would necessarily have a great match but these are just two guys that know how to tell a story together told a great story it, a little bit of an obvious story but you work in Paul Heyman and that angle that gives such emotion to it um, it's just a really good match and uh, it, it's an example of why I begrudgingly admit that Brock Lesnar is a very very good professional wrestler as much as I want to hate him um, the dude knows what he's doing and he knows what he can't do. And that is an under, it pays to know what you don't know. And Brock Lesnar knows what he doesn't know how to do and he doesn't do it. And good for him. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, number eight on the list is a ladder match from 1998, Triple H and The Rock. This is, uh, this is good Attitude Era wrestling. And there's not a lot of it. All of it happens at the top of the card, and this is, I guess, mid-card. This is before either of these guys really hit that next level. But this match is so fucking good, and it is so attitude-esque. It's with China's involvement and just uh, the yellow ladder and the some of the, you know, most of the spots that they do, you know, stuff that you wouldn't be able to get away with today. It's it's violent. It's but it's entertaining. It's funny. There's, there's plenty of run-ins. This is just an entertaining way to spend 22 minutes. If you've never seen it, uh, it's in Madison Square Garden too. So the crowd is just white hot. Go check out, uh, Triple H and The Rock, one of their earliest run-ins, um, and still honestly my favorite run-in between the two of them to this day. Uh, number seven, making his second appearance on the list is CM Punk. This time, it's a few years earlier. He has a ladder match with Jeff Hardy at SummerSlam 09. Um, this is most remembered for one spot, the Jeff Hardy swanton off the ladder spot. Uh, and it should be. that It's an incredible spot. Uh, it'll live forever in, in recap packages of ladder matches or SummerSlam matches or Jeff Hardy matches or times tables broke. Uh, it'll live it through in all of that because it's, it's a great spot. But the match, again, going back to Punk's ability to tell a story in the ring, he's one of the top five in-ring storytellers of all time, and I'm going to get to who's probably number one in just a second. But these guys played on... You know, it's weird. The more things change, the more they stay the same. 
this whole angle with CM Punk mocking Jeff Hardy for his his um, vices and his addictions, and here we are in 2020, and Sheamus is doing the same thing. But you do it because it works. It sells. It builds sympathy. It it creates heat. It's it's a great tool um, to use in in mocking and belittling someone and degrading someone because of their vices and their addictions. Uh, it it there. There's no way you can't relate to it, even if it's a, a second degree or third degree relation. You know, you at least know somebody who has been on the giving or receiving end of this. So it's a very relatable match, and it's these two guys with a ladder and a, and a lot of danger. So how do you not love it? Heading into number six, uh, the second entry from the 1992 SummerSlam, and that is the main event, The I, to my knowledge, the only time the Intercontinental title has ever been the main event of a pay-per-view. Uh, Bret Hart versus the British Bulldog. Uh, this is just, if you enjoy wrestling, this is a great match. You don't have to know anything about the backstory and you'll still enjoy this. But then when you know the backstory and the fact that these guys are brother-in-laws and the fact that it was the first big event to happen in London and you have the London hero in his hometown having you know the spotlight chance of his lifetime to collect this. And again, you're working two baby faces and they're related you know by marriage and they've got the title on the line there's so many elements to this match that take it from a very 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 good match to one of the top 10 SummerSlam matches of all time and by the way this is probably if you look at most lists most lists are going to have this higher than number six I just don't happen to have it that much higher because at that time I was a big Shawn Michaels fan and both Bret Hart and the British Bulldog were uh, making Shawn Michaels life hell so to hell with them. <laughs> that gives you insight into five-year-old me's attitude. Moving ahead on the list, we go to number five. It's the most... Oh, no, it's not the most... It's one of the more recent entries on my list. Uh, it's AJ Styles versus John Cena at uh, SummerSlam 2016. This was, I believe, the second in a trilogy of five-star AJ Styles-John Cena matches. I actually got to be in person for the first one that happened the month prior at, or maybe it was two months prior at, uh, money in the bank. And it was fantastic. And then this was sort of the second in that trilogy. Um, and by all accounts, it's a better match. Like I said, I was in attendance for the first one, so I'm a little biased, but it was an amazing match between both of these guys. It's prior AJ Styles, John Cena trilogy is definitely my favorite of anything AJ Styles has done since being in the WWE. Uh, and Cena in 2016 was really kind of... He was in the beginning process of winding things down, but he was still at the top. Nowadays, like... Nowadays, if Cena came in and it was anywhere near a title match, you'd go, okay, well, he's not going to win, though, because he's not going to really be around that much. We still weren't there yet with Cena. In 2016, he was still pretty um, pot-committed as poker players would say and so there was a there was a lot of uh, speculation on this of are we going with business as usual with John Cena or are we really giving AJ Styles this huge push because it was only in January I believe that he had debuted so we're looking at eight months into AJ Styles career and while he certainly knows spring chicken I think he's 
probably around the same age as John Cena, if not older than him. Uh, this was our first exposure as WWE fans to him, so we were really going to see what happens and how much faith do they have in this new guy, and as John Cena made the one to put him over. So that was really fun. Going on to number four, we're looking at a cage match. It's the second time I'm saying his name, Bret Hart. This time he's facing his blood brother, Owen. There's a theme here. Bret Hart has good matches against family members, and this is no different. This was um, Owen Hart coming hot off of a King of the Ring victory, which Bret Hart had won the year prior. Um, these guys had a long... Bret known as one of the great feuds, man. It really is. And this was sort of the culmination of it all. Uh, it, I, maybe not the culmination, but the apex of it. And it's an incredible match. I am usually not a huge fan of steel cage matches. I prefer like a War Games or a Hell in the Cell if you're going to use a cage. A traditional steel cage match to me... Um, doesn't have that many angles to play. And this one was one of those that where I thought it opened my eyes to what you can do with the steel cage match. Because prior to that, my experience of steel cage matches was like Hogan and Bundy in WrestleMania 2 or Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard at Starcade, which are great matches and fine, but there, you know, there's only so many spots you can do. This really opened that up. And these guys, along with their the fact that they're brothers and they're dealing with you know, family issues, uh, the way that they changed how to tell a story in a steel cage uh, really puts this very high on my list. Only a few things beat it. Uh, number three, the thing that beats it is technically not a SummerSlam match. It's a SummerSlam pre-show match or a kickoff match. But the Usos versus The New Day in 2017 is maybe my favorite tag team match of all time. It's just one of those where everything's clean, Everything's great. It's entertaining as hell. Usos had a lot of heat on them at this point. Is one of my favorite times for the Usos, if not my favorite time. Um, New Day at this point was only three-time champs. I think they're now eight-time champs. Uh, so they weren't baby faces, or they weren't you know fresh meat baby faces by any means. They had been around the block. Um, they had it, their shtick down by 2017 for sure. But this was just. I remember when this happened, and I couldn't believe that it was on the kickoff show. And to this day, I cannot believe that this was on the kickoff show. If you look at the rest of SummerSlam 2017, and you look at this match, this is the best match of that card, and I will defend that to this day. Uh, so if you want a great tag team wrestling match, check out Usos New Day. It's the kickoff, so I recommend if you're using your WWE Network subscription uh, that you just straight-up search... Um, SummerSlam kickoff and find 2017 and go about it that way. It's going to be your fastest way to do it. Going into the top two now, um, number two is the, you know, Usos and New Day was great just because it was a great classic tag team match. This is not a classic wrestling match. This is about as far from a classic wrestling match as you can get. It is 2002 Triple H versus Shawn Michaels street fight. This is the return of Shawn Michaels. This is an unbelievable story. If you watch this match, you have to watch the um, pre-tape package before the match, kind of giving their rivalry. I, if you can, find a fucking documentary about it because the longer form of it that you get, it's just going to make it better. But this is one of those stories that felt so personal and was such a long time coming 
And it couldn't have happened at a better time as far as, you know, peak hatred for Triple H and sympathy for the returning Shawn Michaels. Just an absolutely classic match. Shawn Michaels wrestles it in jeans. It just, it, it sells the street fight. They sell it so well. It's violent. It's brutal. It's personal. Um, commentary is great. There's nothing really bad I can say about this match. A lot of people have this as the greatest SummerSlam match of all time. And I definitely put it higher than anything else that's been on this list for very good reason. Um, but it's not quite number one. And before I tell you number one, let's do a real quick recap. Uh, top 10 SummerSlam matches of all time. Number 10, Randy Savage, Ultimate Warrior from SummerSlam 92. Number 9, uh, Brock Lesnar, CM Punk from SummerSlam 2013. Number 8, Triple H vs. The Rock, SummerSlam 98. Number 7, Punk and Hardy from 2009. Number 6, British Bulldog, Bret Hart from 92. Number 5, AJ Styles, John Cena from 2016. Number 4, Bret Hart and Owen Hart from 1994. Number 3, Usos and the New Day from SummerSlam Kickoff 2017. Number 2, we just talked about Triple H and Shawn Michaels, HBK from 2002. But the number 1 SummerSlam match of all time is a perfect match. It's my third time saying the name Bret Hart. It is my first time saying the name Mr. Perfect. And it is at number 1 for a reason. This is a perfect match wrestling match period you don't have run-ins you don't have crazy antics you don't have weapons you don't have any of the bells and whistles that make for a great match and i'm not denying that but this is a clean wrestling match in-ring storytelling done at its absolutely highest form uh it's a match that i can show anybody who has any sort of experience with wrestling or no experience with wrestling and get them to enjoy it. Um, it it's a, I keep, I keep saying perfect and I don't mean to keep saying perfect because that's cliche and obvious, but this is one match that I highly recommend. If you haven't seen, take the time to go watch it, especially knowing, watch this match through the lens of the fact that Mr. Perfect knew going into this match, he needed lower back surgery lower back surgery that would keep him out of action for a year possibly forever but at least a year and he goes in and he works with one of the greatest workers of all time and he sells like only mr perfect can sell and he just does everything that he can to make every single moment matter this is a passing of the torch moment this is him doing a job for someone that he believes is the future face of the company and he would prove to be right by the way this is a match that made Bret Hart's career and to me shows what Mr. Perfect does absolutely best which is get his ass kicked and he has never gotten his ass kicked better than in this match so go watch all of these matches but at the very least do yourself a favor if you haven't seen it check out SummerSlam 1991 it's fun commentary it's a great match and you get Mr. Perfect's weird curly hair what more can you want Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for once again listening to me, your reigning, rarely defending, highly disputed champion of wrestling podcast, Mike Mueller. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button on Apple, uh, Stitch, Spotify, whatever, Google, whatever you use to listen to this. Hit, uh, give me a review. Hit the subscribe button. It really makes a difference in 
And of course, contact me on Facebook and Twitter at Closet Champ. I love your questions. I love your comments. I love your criticisms. If you think I suck, please tell me I suck. At least I know you listened. Have a great day, everybody. Until next time, I am the Closet Champion, Mike Mueller, and I'm going to take the count out loss and get out of here with my belt. Peace. Peace.